So we're in a uh, teaching series that we began last week on the subject of love life. And uh, we're talking about how experiencing uh, the love of God impacts or should impact the relationships uh, around us. And so we'll be talking about this subject up until Easter Sunday. And uh, we're just going to have a great time Easter. So I'm really looking forward uh, to Easter this year. And uh, probably in about two weeks or so, we'll have uh, a whole bunch of, of invites uh, for Easter Sunday. It's such a great opportunity for you to bring a guest for the first time uh, to church. And so we have uh, those that are being designed for us and really looking forward uh, to that day. And then as well, I know that Jim was talking about our kids. And, and uh, for those of you that know us, kids ministry is something that's just very important to us. And next week, you'll see in your, in your program, you'll see uh, a list of some key dates for this summer. Uh, at the Spikes game, you'll see the dates for our picnics at the park. You'll also see our kids camp uh, dates as well. So we want to get that out to you so you can plan uh, accordingly. I know many of you uh, were not here last week. You were uh, sitting at home. You are staying warm in the eight-degree weather. And so by way of just brief introduction, last week uh, we talked about 1 John 4, 7 through 8. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And so we talked about the command, we talked about the commitment, and we talked about the condition of love, And I said that I believe in our culture today that we're kind of dismissing the first two, the command and commitment part, and many are living their lives based on conditional love. If you love me or if I feel love, then, then we're in love, and the commitment and the command part has seemed like it's gone out the window in our nation today. We talked about 1 Corinthians, uh, and I said that it's not a, a, an exhaustive definition of love, but it's the natural fruit of of a life that is surrendered to Jesus, that only in Jesus are you able to fulfill uh, the love that is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And uh, you can catch that uh, if you are not here online. And uh, so let's stand together this morning. If you're uh, watching online, we do welcome you today, uh, either live or you're listening this week. And there's a link below this video so you can share your name and maybe a story about what God's doing in your life. And uh, I really do appreciate those that connect with us through the internet and be able to dialogue back and forth throughout the week. John chapter 13, uh, beginning in verse 31, and then we have two key verses. Uh, when he, so it's Judas, was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little bit longer. You will look for me just as I had told the Jews. So I tell you now where I am going, you cannot come. Here's the key verses. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Verse 35. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. If... You love one another. Lord, we thank you for your word today. Lord, I pray over the next few minutes, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would breathe life on these verses to us today. Lord, I pray you would help me communicate clearly uh, what you want to speak uh, to your people today. Lord, I pray that you would challenge, that you would encourage, that you would equip them. Lord, we thank you that your word, uh, the Bible says the grass withers, the flower fades, but your word is established and stands forever. 
We thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So Ashley and I are, are excited. I know that I mentioned a couple weeks ago that, that we are in the process of moving later this spring. And so we received an offer on our home that we accepted. And so we're, we're beginning the process of the fun process, right, of home inspections and, and just all the details that go with, with selling one house and moving uh, into another house in the Park Forest area uh, later this spring. There are a couple things that I'm going to like about this house. First of all, it's going to have a home office, uh, but most importantly, it's going to have four bedrooms. Uh, you know, there are many nights, uh, like last Saturday night, I was up no less than probably eight to ten times, and I got home last Sunday after my message, and I thought, wow, I had a probably like 327 points, and I was just kind of all over the place because... How many of you know when you wake up five to ten times in the middle of the night, you just kind of, your mind is, so I'm looking forward to that. And so this house will be a blessing to me. It'll be a blessing to you as well. And uh, so I was thinking about this, and I'll tie this in just a few minutes. We moved to State College about ten years ago. Uh, This is BC, so before children. So we moved into a duplex, and we walked in, and, and the house, I mean, it was, it was luxury, this duplex. I mean, it was two bedrooms, two bathrooms, and we were living like a king and queen because who needs two bathrooms when you're, when you're married with no children? I mean, we had a guest room, no guests at that point in time, but we had a guest room, we had empty space, and it was just, it was huge. And, and it, you know, the empty palace quickly, once we had two children, felt like an overcrowded playpen. Everything was purple, everything was pink, there was stuff just, you couldn't move. So we, we decided to take the step to purchasing our very first house in the State College Borough. So we bought this little three-bedroom house. And Ashley and I and our two little kids moved in. This is still BC, not before children, but before chaos and confusion. So we moved into this house in three bedrooms and two ba- And you walk around. It's, it's, I remember walking in. It's like, hello, hello, hello. You know, it's just huge. <laughs> You know, fast forward two more children, and, and that huge home feels like we're living in a storage unit right now at this point. I mean, there's just stuff. You can only put stuff so many places before it's like, this. I actually stored stuff in the trunk of my car. That's how tight our house has been. And so, you know, new things are good things, right? So we, we moved into the duplex, and it was a new thing. It was a good thing. We moved into this little home in the borough. It was a good thing. And now moving into this new home in Park Forest, that will eventually probably feel like the overcrowded closet, but it's a good thing. How many of you say new things are, are typically good things, right? Maybe you say, well, it's not a new home if it's in Park Forest. Okay, you, used things in life are good things, right? If you don't have a car, right, a used car is a, is a good car. And I want you to hold that thought for a minute. I was thinking uh, one of you uh, senior saints, and Ashley and I love that we have people in this church that are over 65, over 70. One of you had an iPhone a couple weeks ago, and you were showing me this smart, I mean, it was like I handed my child, you know, a drone remote control. You know, you're standing there like fascinated at this new thing. New things are good things. So as we come to John chapter 13, every text in the Bible has a context. It's important to note the context of these two key verses. So it's the Passover festival, right? It's right before the Passover festival. 
Jesus is meeting with his disciples privately. And as he's meeting with them, he does the unthinkable. They're in this home, and as they're eating, Jesus now stands up from the meal in John chapter 13. He begins to walk over to the disciples. Their, their feet are dusty. They're covered with dung. They're covered with dust. They're dirty from walking the streets. And now he stands up, and he begins to wrap a towel around his waist. And he bends over and he begins to wipe the dust, the dirt, the dung, the filth of the day off of their feet. Their leader, their teacher is now instead of standing before them, he's now bowing down at their feet and he's cleaning, modeling, not positional leadership, but he's modeling servant leadership as he's wiping and he's cleaning the dust and the dirt and he's serving them. And what's amazing is the symbolism of what's taking place. It's like it's a parable in action. This great principle of of being great in God's kingdom. The Bible says you must be a servant. The symbolism, Jesus is rising up from the supper, a place of rest and comfort, just as he's about in a few short moments to rise to his throne in heaven, a new place of rest and comfort. He's laying aside the garments that as he's taking off the covering, just as he's about to lay aside, the Bible says his glory, he's taking off his heavenly covering. He takes this towel and he girds himself as if he's ready to work, just as Jesus came to this earth ready to serve. He's pouring out water into a bowl to clean, just as his blood is about to be poured out for the sin and the guilt and the penalty of sin. And as he's washing the disciples' feet, he's now sitting down. He's cleaning their feet just as he's going to sit down at the right hand of God the Father. In a few short moments, he's serving them. If Jesus wanted to to display the image in this text of a servant, I think it would have been simple. He would have simply had somebody prepare a bowl and a towel. He would have had it all set up and he would have had that servant clean the disciples' feet and he would have given them the image of what it looked like to serve, but Jesus didn't do that. He completely gave himself over to the work of serving. This would be unthinkable in that day to the Jewish laws and traditions between the relationship of a teacher and the disciple or the student. They, they had no right to demand. They had no right to even allow Jesus to clean their master washing his feet. And then he says this, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you must... Wash one another's feet, for I have set before you an example. What is this? It's an example. That you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, verse 16, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who had sent him. Talking about humility and relationships. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do. Say do. If you do them. So you fast forward. Jesus now predicts his betrayal and Peter's denial. And we come to these two key verses in verses 34 through 35. They'll be on the screen. He says, a new command I give you, love one another just as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. I'd say put yourself in the disciples' sandals, but they were off at this point in time. But put yourself in the disciples' feet, as weird as that sounds. What on earth? 
are they thinking as Jesus says, this new command, oh, Jesus, a new thing? We've had enough of those, and now you've got this new revolutionary way of, of loving one another. There are a couple things this morning that I want to draw your attention to about this new command in the Bible. In what the, many scholars will call this is, is, is a farewell discourse. Basically, it's a final speech or conversation to those that are closest to Jesus. We see these examples in the life of Jacob and in, of, in the life of Moses and David and so forth. Where a man or a woman uh, is telling of their impending death, what they were doing was they were comforting the family, trying to help them through what is going to look the grief process even. They're, they're going to announce some things that are taking place in their life and what's going to take place in the future. And Jesus' farewell discourse here fits the pattern of so many that we see in Scripture except one huge exception that has caused it to stand alone throughout history, and that is in his death, uh, he will not leave, though he will leave in bodily form, that the Spirit of God will be with them throughout this time and will return at the end of the age. The Bible talks about him returning. And these farewell discourses, typically they contain instruction to those family uh, that are left behind. Some of you have stood at the bed of a loved one, and you've, you've experienced that with a parent that says, don't forget or don't remember uh, this. So the initial statement we see is he talks about his glorification and his departure, but then he speaks of this, this new way of loving uh, one another, and that's what we're going to focus on today. The love that he's not only modeling his disciples, but the, the command that he's giving them. And in my Bible, as I was pulling this text out a couple weeks ago and I wanted to um, speak on this, I noticed that I had the numbers one, two, three written on top of these two verses. Because when you see repetition in Scripture, it's, it's to emphasize something that's taking place. You know, if I were in the lobby after service and Ashley's uh, in the nursery today, but if, if Ashley and I were, were walking out in the lobby and you overheard me say to Ashley, uh, after service, this. I say, honey, don't forget to grab the envelope that I left on the welcome table. It's the same envelope that I brought in the car and I put it on the table. So when you leave, don't forget the envelope because when we leave together, I'm going to remember if you grabbed the envelope. How many of you would be saying, there's probably something kind of important in that envelope, right? So Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another by this, all men will know you're my disciples if you what? Love one another. This, there must be something significant in this farewell discourse that Jesus wants his disciples to get. And I want to break this down in a couple areas this morning. The first is the command of love. He says, a new command I give you. It's interesting that Jesus is not looking his disciples in the eyes and giving them a suggestion He's not saying, I want you to pray about this. I want you to think about. He's giving them the directive. He's giving them the command or the order to love. The love that Jesus is speaking about is not simply a feeling like we talked about last week. You really, if you think about it, you can't command feelings, right? Could you imagine if during greeting time this morning, I walked up to somebody that just seemed kind of down and they're sitting down, everybody else is talking, having 
and I said, I, I command you to be happy. And they're like, what? I command, I command you to be happy. They probably laugh and say, command whatever you want. I ain't happy, right? You can't command feelings. Go ahead and try it sometime with a child. Command feelings. See how that goes down, right? You can't command feelings. I mean, do you ever try to make yourself love someone or like? I mean, it's hard enough even to like some people, right? I mean, you love them because God loves them. But how many of you, there's just people that just doesn't, I mean, they just, they just rub you the wrong way. I mean, it's hard enough, let alone to, to love them, the feeling of loving. But that's not what the Bible's talking about. It's not speaking of love as a noun, but love as a verb. Think about it this way. That if God's will stands alone as what is truly good in any situation or any circumstance, if love is not simply a feeling, but it's an action that loving is so much more than just this feeling that I have between a person, but it's aligning my life with the good and the perfect will of, of God in a situation or in a circumstance. We see this as Jesus is revealed in such a way of, of doing what he sees the Father doing, the Bible says, and only speaking what he hears the Father speaking. The same pattern we, we see in 1 John 2, 6 that says, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. That this love is not a noun, it's not a feeling, but love is a life that is aligned with the word of God. And whatever you're facing, it's an obedience to the will of God and through the guidance and the direction of the Holy Spirit who's speaking and working in our lives. So when you read of this new command, initially you're thinking, what's so new about that? You could say, Zach, no, Pastor Zach, this isn't new. If you read in Leviticus, you should love your neighbor as yourself, right? So what's so new about this? I mean, if new things are good things, what's so new about this? And if you're a disciple, you may be thinking the same thing as you're hearing this for the very, very first time. But here's what I want to do when you think about this word. I don't want you to think different, a different way. I want you to think dimension, that there's a new dimension of, of love. The original word in the Greek language is this word kainos, which is an interesting word that means fresh, recent, re, or unused, or un, un, unworn as a garment. That there's this new dimension of the love of God that he's now in, in, he's commanding the disciples to walk in. We see this word used in Psalm 96 as David is saying to sing to the Lord a kainos, a new song. The idea with that is that, that worship, if it's linked to simply words on a screen, that that can become stale and old and dry and dead. But David's saying, sing a kainos, sing a, a new song to the Lord. Sing out of the freshness of what God is doing in your life through words that are not necessarily linked to a song. Isaiah, we see this word used. See, I'm doing a kainos thing, or a, God is doing a, a new thing, or a fresh work, we see in the book of Isaiah. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we see Paul is saying that he has made us competent ministers of the, of, the, of the new covenant, talking about this fresh covenant that he has given us, a new command 
The ancient Greek word implies freshness, which is the opposite of something being worn, rather being recent. So it isn't that this command was just invented, but it's being presented in a new and a fresh way. As they're beginning to, Jesus is preparing them. He's preparing them of his, of his death, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit's working in their lives. And it's so much more than just moving into a brand new home. But it's this idea that the home is now being reconstructed or being recreated. How many of you remember the show uh, Extreme Home Edition? You know, where they take the, the, the framework of a house and they reorient absolutely everything within it. And it's this idea that the Holy Spirit of God is now working, not in a very different way, but in a new dimension. So in, in, in essence, it is different, but it's, it's this new dimension of the Spirit of God that is working in our lives that Jesus is challenging them and he's commanding them to walk in. Because up to this point, the Son of God has, has yet to lay down his life and to this degree of greatness and making this degree of sacrifice that they're about to see and experience. So this love is not new. It, is, it had existed since the beginning of time, but up to this point, it had not yet been manifest or made available into incarnation. So it's completely different, but it's a, it's a new dimension. It's the fruit of the disciples' relationship with Jesus and the working of the Holy Spirit in their lives, that it's to be fresh. Jesus isn't saying, imitate my sacrifice. He's not saying, imitate my fruit. But he's saying, as you surrender more and more to me, that the Holy Spirit will begin to produce these things in your life. As you study scripture, even up to this point, Jesus talked a lot about love. He talked about the importance of loving God. He instructed them to love their enemies. He, you could argue uh, that by way of like implication that the command to love their neighbors would have been included in this. But up to this point, an explicit command he had not given them. And I believe he's giving this to the disciples, this new command, because within them, as he's preparing to leave, there's kind of this... this uh, I don't want to say innate flaw, but there's this thing that's within him that is he's going to leave that typically, you know, in that loss, there are, um, there's the, the tendency maybe to neglect loving one another as, as they are disciples following Jesus. It seems that we're much better and more apt to deal with love as a noun than love as a verb or an action in our lives. So we could talk about loving our neighbors. We could talk about loving those that are lost, that are without Christ in our community. But, but when it comes to actually stepping forward and saying that the love of God has so captured my heart that I want to express or I want to do, sometimes that line can be drawn. Everybody will say, I love my neighbor. But then you say, well, what, what have you reached out and you've served them and you've offered to pray for them? Well, I love those that are lost around the world. Well, When's the last time that the love of God has so captured your heart that standing and saying was not simply enough, but you crossed over and said, God, I want you to use me in reaching those. It's more than just being a noun. It's a verb. I heard someone once say that if God is love, then he is obviously not a noun that demanded to be defined, but he's a verb that he invites us to be loved and to love. Secondly, the source of love. He says, as I, so Jesus, have loved you. So we have this 
statement where Jesus is saying, I am the source of love. He's making it abundantly clear that he is the source of love. Back in 1994, there was a USA article that was giving this idea for medical professionals, and here's what they suggested. They said in order to make patients feel better about the doctors, they wanted the doctors to begin to feel better about their patients, and some analysis suggests that the the physicians started taking acting lessons. The idea was that if the doctor could be trained to act compassionate and to care for the patients, even if they didn't feel like it, And so some accomplished actors, these physicians who found themselves swamped, they were stressed out, they were lacking compassion for their patients, at least they could act as if they had cared. But the ultimate goal was in the acting process, the hope was that as the teachers or the doctors began to respond as if they were emotionally connected, then perhaps they would become genuinely interested in their patients, feeling compassion care uh, towards the patients. That's not what the Bible's talking about. Unlike the doctors who learned to act as if they cared during that season, there was no supernatural component to this. As we read what the Bible's talking about this love, there, there has to be a supernatural component to the love of God that's very, very different. See, before you minister to people in love, I believe you personally need to get to the point that you've been mastered, you've been captured wholeheartedly by the love of God. The tough thing about this is you can't teach this. This isn't something that you can teach. This is something you've got to experience. You've got to experience. You've got to get to the place where God has so captured you He so mastered you in this area of love that you're unquestionably sure that there's a loving God who knows my name. And once that happens, you can't help but to minister out of love. You ever see somebody that they've got great intentions, maybe they're a Christian, and they're sharing Jesus with people, but they're talking about him like he's this, you know, God loves you. You're like, Tell your face, you know, like, don't be angry. God, God loves people. They present the gospel in a way that there's this angry God out there that just wants to whip people into shape like he's a drill sergeant. If you can just get your stinking life in line, you know. Why, is, what is that? I remember years ago being, I was at the beach and this guy was just trying to, Great intentions. He wanted to do this thing for God. You know, we're going we're gonna to win the world. We're going to make disciples. We're going to tell them they're all going to hell. And, and the thing is, most of them know that. But the tone, the, the you know, we're doing this thing for God. And we're, God loves you. And what, what is that? I, I think many times it's, It's a Christian that hasn't been mastered by the love of God. Because when you do, you minister out of the love of God. Maybe you're not a Christian today. God passionately loves you. He's not angry with you, but he wants a relationship with you. He's pursuing you. 
And you may be here today, and, and you've had that message of the gospel presented to you, and there's this like undertone to it, like God's angry out there. No, he, he wants nothing more than for you to come into relationship with him. And you can walk out of a church service, you can walk out of a presentation of the gospel and completely reject it. And you can walk across the parking lot to your car and the love of God's still gonna try to chase you down. The grace of God is gonna try to chase you down. There's not one thing you can do today that will make him love you anymore. He's passionately desiring to draw you to himself. The message of this church is not that God's angry. God, God's patiently waiting and he's longing, he's desiring to draw men and women to him. You can reject the gospel and the Bible says you're not exempt from the consequences of that rejection. It's not like you're gonna stand before God and say, God, I, I did a lot of good things. He's gonna say, but you didn't know me. I passionately tried to reach you and you rejected it. And in rejecting that, you experienced the consequences of being separated from his love. And the Bible's clear about that. But even in then, he'll still long and love you so very much. We minister out of the love of God. Now, you can only do that when you've been captured by the heart of God. We read about this later on in John chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment. I give you love one another as loved you, as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Talking about this sacrificial love willing to sacrifice for another person. And then right before that, in verse nine, he says, as the father has loved me, so I love you. Talking about this idea of abiding in the love of God. Jesus is saying, it's not that you copy this in my life, but you remain connected in me and you'll minister out of my love. It's gonna be the manifestation of a life that is aligned with, with my life. It's a life that's connected to the vine. Number three, the demonstration of love. That it's so much more than just love is a feeling, but the demonstration of the love. And there's, there's a few reasons in this new commandment that I believe that this was gonna be needed for the disciples is Jesus is now about to leave. The context is you're about to leave the earth in bodily form. And I believe this, de the, this demonstration of love is so incredibly important for the disciples because there will be times when they, they're different. They, they differ, di uh, differ in a situation or circumstances. And even in, in that situation where the, where the danger is you become critical, the danger is that you become angry with another uh, person. Remember, they were just recently arguing Talking about the highest position of authority in the kingdom of God, they're divided. And Jesus is saying, no, my love is bringing you together in spite of your differences. I think there were, would be times in the disciples moving on as Jesus leaves that though his physical presence was gone, Jesus knew that the presence of the Holy Spirit would be with them. And even then in their times of, of challenge and their difficulty and their suffering and their persecution, there would be times that they need the companionship, the friendship, the closeness of relationship out of concern for one another. 
I think Jesus knew that this supernatural dimension of love with them as brothers and sisters in Christ would keep them focused on the task that was before them. But now that his physical presence would be gone, the spirit is now with them and is reminding them through this commitment to minister in love out of the same spirit. And so even as they were physically together before this point in time with Jesus, you're gonna begin to see as history unfolds that they're now scattered, they're, they're persecuted, they're, they're separated, they're, they're, uh, they're in prisons and they're suffering for the sake of Christ. And yet the love of God, not this Old Testament love like you love your neighbor as yourself, but there's this, it's not a simple, kind of simply like a human form of love, but there's this new dimension of love as they're partnering and they're ministering together. It's a fascinating thing. And I, it's one of the reasons why you've got to at some point in time go on a missions trip. There is something supernatural about this dimension of love with your brothers and sisters in Christ that you can meet a, a Christian in another nation, not speak the language, not really know them, but you can sense the love of God and the unity between you is almost immediate. It's such an awesome thing. Everybody should experience that. You know, we go to Mexico on these trips, and sometimes you'll get put in a car with just a Christian person, a brother and sister in Christ from Mexico, and immediately you trust them. Immediately you sense the love of God, and like the Spirit of God within them connects or resonates with the Spirit of God within you, and you realize we're on the same team, we're part of the same family. What God is doing in me, he wants to do in you. What he's doing through your ministry in Mexico is what he's doing through. It's just such a cool dimension And you've got to be able to experience that in your life. It's such a wonderful thing. The distinctiveness of this supernatural love is there only because the Holy Spirit of God has now taken up residence within you and I. It should be a unique mark of our lives as Christians. The love of Jesus, the the love of spiritual being that causes us to hunger and to thirst after God's presence and and union with God and his people. This love that is is shared in the same life of, of other believers. This love of spiritual union that buys or ties us together. You can come alongside with a group in another country and you're there to serve. You're there to help. And like the love of God between the two of you, you're immediately partnering. You're, you're immediately ministering together. It's such a, a wonderful thing as you see the demonstration of love taking place that you share in the joy and the fellowship with one another that their needs become our needs. Their blessings become our blessings. Their sorrows become our sorrows. This demonstration of love is such a a wonderful thing. And the Bible says that the result, finally the result of this love, Jesus concludes, this fresh dimension of the love of God is that by this all men will know that you're my disciples if, everybody say if, if you love one another. This is powerful. That the Christians loving our, our brothers and sisters in Christ here in our community, here in our, in our world, the Bible says becomes the greatest testament, the greatest witness without us even speaking a word. I had somebody months ago give, give our church just the most awesome compliment. Not a Christian, but they were here on a Sunday. And in the cafe, I mean, you think preaching, 
carries the weight for a lot of people. Maybe just the way you treat one another carries a lot of weight. This person said, I don't know what it is about the church, but I walked in and I just saw what was going on in the cafe area. And they said, there's just something about the love of God. And you know what? I didn't say, what do you think about my sermon? <laughs> I don't care at that point. Well, did you like the music? No, no. That the greatest message that day that was spoken to that person didn't come from a, a pastor. It didn't come from a worship team. It didn't come from a, It came because they recognized the love of God between you. Such an awesome thing that takes place. And the Bible says that's the result, that when you live out or you flesh out this new commandment, that in a world that's full of anger, in a world that's full of ang- uh, envy or, or jealousy, in a world that, I mean, this sticks out like a sore thumb. Unconditional, supernatural, sacrificial love that binds you and I together, that it's the identifying mark of Christianity as the worship team begins to come. My prayer for you is that for every one of you, whether you're serving Jesus for two weeks or 20 years, that you surrender your life to Jesus in such a degree that you're captured by his love. And it'll transform absolutely Every relationship that you have, it will be a sign to unbelievers, this sacrificial, supernatural love. And it'll help you in so many ways. It'll help you surrender your life. And as you surrender it, it naturally aligns more and more with God's word. For me, one of the things that's just recently, you know, you start start seeing the news about the persecution that's going on in our world today. And I'll tell you, when I hear about it or I read a story or I see a picture, a picture somebody sent me not too long ago of a Christian that's being hanged on a cross. When I looked at that, felt very much like it was one of my kids one of the leaders in our church I mean that's my brother or sister in Christ you get captured by the love of God what they experience oh you you feel it you sense it it'll cause you to pray very differently very differently persecution is not this thing that's out there but it's this thing that we're dealing with in our family as a as a christian right there are brothers and sisters in christ and when they suffer we suffer but the identifying mark of a christian is the love of God in and then through our lives. Billy Graham once said, he said that we're the Bibles that a lot of people are, are reading throughout the week. How are we doing with that? 
How are we doing with that? Would you close your eyes this morning? Oh, Holy Spirit, we need you. Holy Spirit, we need you more and more in our lives. It's not in trying harder. It's not in doing more so that we can love. But Holy Spirit, we need to surrender more and more areas of our lives to Jesus so that he can begin to produce these things in our lives. So the question is, you're here today, is what? Not do you need to do, what do you need to surrender more of to Jesus so that you can begin walking in forgiveness, so you can begin to take off that bitterness, so that love can be the identifying mark in your life so that the presence of God kind of exudes from your life, that when people are around you, there's just something. They can't even put their finger on it at times, but they just know. We had about 30 house showings over the last couple weeks. One of them, there's this couple that's walking through the house, and we're we heard that they just kept saying, there's just this sixth sense about this house. I thought that's the presence of God. (laughs) It's just something about it. Lord, we come to you today.